or whatever you want to talk about, or do both. Uh, well, both. Both. All right. Figuring out the camera. Oh, wait a minute. Is that where all the videos go? Are they gone? Yeah. yeah. You can go into uh, uh, Krishna Cove. What, are they, what is it? Uh, Krishna Cove, Spiritual Oasis, and the Desert Oasis. Yeah. <laughs> and, then there's, uh, and all the Krishna Coves are on there. Nine years. Wow. Yeah. Nine years. Some people. Very few people seem to know that, you know. Every single one. You bet. Every one of them. Well, when you go back to the first Krishna Kova, I think you. That's yeah, you go back to the very Isn't first that, like, one. Just before we go to the temple. Uh, did you go back to the very first one? Yeah, yeah the, well, No, to the very first one I was a part of. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, that yeah. makes it. The room looks completely different in Narhari, Tugo Binda, where the Kirtan team. It's just the one. Okay. We're going to talk about X. Excess baggage. <laughs> Excess baggage. Um, so we, I, I came up with that because I hear a lot of people talking about it. You know, you know I just met somebody, but they've got a lot of excess baggage. Isn't that what they call it? Excess baggage, or sometimes it's just a bunch of a lot of baggage. You know, so. Um, and I've heard this so much for so long, I realize that it's pretty common in the material world to feel that we have excess baggage, you know, got baggage. And we start to judge people as whether or not they'd be a good friend or a good mate based on how much of this baggage they have. So uh, what is this? It's, it's a problem enough to where it's, it's got its own name and people are concerned about it. <clears throat> so let's discuss what it is. Uh, it's like when you go to India. It's funny how India works, you know. <laughs> You've got the rest of the world, then you're an Indian. So, uh, sorry, Krishna. You get on a plane, an international flight, and they'll, most of the good ones will give you two bags. You know, your ticket give, gives you two, because you're going internationally. They feel like we'll give you two bags. We're going to charge you through the nose anyway. So we'll give you two bags, not to exceed 50 pounds. All right, so you got 100 pounds of baggage. So then you fly into uh, Mumbai. Or at least you might not, but I do. I like to go there first because I go to the doctor there. and We've got our... Bhaktivedanta Hospital there, and I get checkup and everything, uh, new glasses and all that stuff. So then I'm going to fly using an Indian airline, which are very good, by the way. Many of them, most of them that I've flown are really, really good. Air India, but the rest of them, you know, very good, professional. So 
you take your hundred pounds bag uh, of bags, and you're going to get on this uh, Trans India flight. The problem is they're going to give you 15 kg, which is about 33 pounds, and anything over that is excess baggage. We're going to charge you. Accident, you say? I think not. <laughs> You know, they know. Those guys, he's just coming in from America or whatever, and he's got all these bags. Well, we're going to charge you. So sometimes it can get very uh, expensive, you know. It can cost almost as much as the ticket, the bags, to get you to Calcutta or whatever, which is only like, it used to be only like $100 or something like that, you know, to get from Mumbai to something like that. So... Uh, uh, anyway, that's why I, I, I like to take the train a lot of times, you know, because they don't charge for bags. It takes longer, but you get to see all the countryside of India, so it's, you don't have to worry about excess baggage. So where does this excess baggage come from? Uh, another analogy I have is like uh, when you surf the web, you know, do people still surf the web? Am I the only one still doing that? I'm thinking everybody's gotten real hip and they've moved on to something else, you know. The world's been doing that for 74 years to me, you know. Just as soon as I figure something out, everybody's doing this now. So, for those of you who still surf the web, uh, you pick up excess baggage in the form of cookies and malware, adware, all this other stuff, you know. And uh, actually this stuff can, if you don't deal with it, can start to accumulate in your device, you know, your pad or your phone or your computer, and actually impede its performance, you know. So you get all this, there's another form of excess baggage. Uh, and so, let me see, another one I... Uh, Ah, yeah. So you're surfing the web and you're getting all this excess baggage. As we surf the material world, birth after birth, life after life, we pick up excess baggage. Because we got some junk that comes with us. When we take birth in this life, some of it's coming with us from a previous life. You know? Uh, we call that karma. So there's, you know, there's uh, there's actually karma, and then there's uh, uh, karma. A lot of people they don't tell you that. Those people who know this, like the people who talk about the pundits. You know, they're using that term now. Well, a pundit is 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 generally considered a. It's a Sanskrit word that means uh, a spiritual authority. But if you're an authority on anything, you're a pundit now. You know, the or a guru. Western. Or a guru, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the home economics guru. You know, I mean, you could be a, a guru in anything. You there's know, a shop so. down the road called Computer Guru. <laughs> you know, there's no end to it. We use the, these things. So, so, the karma is the reaction from sinful activities. That's the bad stuff. 
you know, you get here, you've got karma, which is generally good. Uh, then you've got the, the bad stuff, which is going to cause you suffering. So we may think, well, I'd rather have the good stuff. I'd rather have good karma. So but the problem is, if you don't get rid of all the good and the bad karma, what happens? At the time that, that you are destined to leave this body, what happens with all that karma? Good and bad. What does it cause? Rebirth. Rebirth. You've got to take another birth. If it's all good, you still have to take another birth to come back and get it. It's going to be paid to you. So, the problem is, uh, every time you take a birth, there's a guarantee that comes with it. That's called death. Take a birth, you're going to take a death. So, in between this birth and death, this isn't sounding very, very happy, is it? It's just truth, you know. So in between this birth and this death, there's going to be some disease. Many years ago, I used to talk like that, and people would think, oh, well, I take good care of myself. But that was before the pandemic. Now you can talk about disease, and people say, yeah, all right, you know, it can affect the whole world. So, again. So, uh, uh, and if you're lucky and you take real good care of yourself and you eat well and exercise, and, uh, you're not accident prone or anything, then you get that reward of old age. So, you know, I'm trying to paint a realistic picture here. You know, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that this is a, a place of danger. You know, this is. This material world is not a place that we come to if we want to enjoy. It's just not. Uh, no, you don't come here to enjoy. So, yeah. We say that a lot, you know, in between there's, you know, you have birth, you have death. And a lot of times we say, you know, in between there's old age and disease. But someone might argue that there's also a lot of really good, you know, it's good times too. There's, there's enjoyment that happens in between that. Sure. And we say, well, you know, I get to have my kids and my family, and, you know, I get to, you know, go to Disneyland once or twice. And there's some good times there, too. And someone might say that. Yeah, they could say that. What do you think, Melissa? What would you say to that? I was thinking that, yes, it's great, but you'll have to say goodbye to it. <laughs> yeah. It's temporary. It's temporary. The material world gives it to you. And then here it is knocking on your door. Give it back. You know, you don't get to keep it. You don't get to keep your youth. You know. I mean, this is, I'm sorry to, get, to tell you guys about this. But <laughs> don't get to keep your youth. You know, vitality and everything. You don't get to keep that. You see. Uh, it's like kind of winning the lottery. You know, you win the lottery, $100 million, and then a week later, here they are. Yeah, who is it? Uh, we came to get the lottery back. What? Well, you don't get to keep it. You know, 
even if they didn't come to get it, you wouldn't get to keep it. You'd spend it, or somebody would cheat you out of it, or steal it from you. You know. So uh, this isn't sounding real good. <laughs> you know. And even let's say in this life, let's say you take a pretty decent birth, and you're starting to realize uh, that it's time that I ask myself some important questions. Now this is after, well, I don't know, hundreds of trillions of births. In every form of life, all of the 8,400,000 species of life, again and again and again, we start to ask some important questions. Is there life after death? You know, is there a God? Uh, who am I? Who is God? What is this place I'm in? So for most of our births, we're just passing through. You know, we're just trying to make it through the day. You know, looking for something to eat, a place to sleep, a mate. And then once, if we get that, we have to defend it because somebody else wants to, to take it. You know, human life is very much like uh, animal life. It's just a little bit more sophisticated. But, you know, you get something valuable, somebody's going to try to take it away from you. Uh, not necessarily will they come and point a gun at you, but they may tell you about some really cool product that you just can't live without. And so they're trying to get what it, whatever it is you have. You see? So, but we start to focus on is there a God? Is there life after death? What's this all about? What's really happening to me? And so um, the problem is we were all born in the same place. The darkness of ignorance. You see, who's there telling you all of these answers that you need? From the time that you can understand the language around you, who's giving you the absolute answers on is there life after death I've talked to uh, very high up I had a, I was on an international flight one time with uh, someone I don't know what his position was but he was very high up in the Catholic Church this lady kind of liked me in London and she bumped me up to first class and told me not to tell anybody so I'm sitting next to this guy and he's got a Gold cross, you know, like his. I thought he was a rapper for a while. You know, <laughs> you know big rain. And so we chatted for hours. And uh, he said to me, after hours of talking spiritual life, I was quoting Bhagavad Gita and he was throwing some Bible at me and we were pitching it back and forth. And he said, well, at the end, actually, no one really knows. <laughs> You know, and he was older than me. He'd been doing this all his life. And I thought, well, that's just pitiful. You should know. What are you doing it for? Just insurance? <laughs> you know? You know, it's just yeah, fire insurance. If I do this, maybe I won't go to, to the fire. <laughs> so, in other words, he after all his life and being very high in the Catholic Church, and I wish I could remember his name and his position, because I've wondered about it since then. Um, 
after all of this dedication, he didn't know. And he was admitting it to a Hare Krishna monk. He didn't say it in the bigger speech. Huh? He no. Say it in the speech. He said, after all, none of us really know. For sure. Nobody really knows for sure. So you're, I'm waiting until death to find out what's on the other side. So basically, he's admitting to speculation. You see, I've been in, uh, in a world of speculation. We're, you're in a world of, we're all in a world of speculation. We all come from uh, uh, ignorance. That means everybody that we encounter here in this material world, they come from ignorance too. So how are the blind going to lead the blind? You see? I'm ignorant. I don't know, but I'm speculating. Oh, I meet you. Hey, your speculations are really great. I'm going to go with your speculations. As a matter of fact, I'm going to accept it as true. But I mean, after all, really, nobody actually knows. You know, that's, that's just not... That's not acceptable to those of us who have experienced the real true knowledge. Knowledge from Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, Bhakti Yoga should get you to the point where it's proven to you. You know, how many uh, coincidences have to happen before you realize it's not a coincidence? You know? Now, I, there are no, if you believe in God, the all-powerful supreme personality of Godhead, then we know there aren't, there's no such thing as coincidences. Krishna says everything is under my control. You know, I'm the supreme controller. So there are no coincidences. But even if you are not very faithful, uh, how many coincidences does it take before you say, wait a minute, there's something going on here? Even an atheist, you see, so, is this making any sense? So we've navigated our, life, our, our way through life after life, birth after birth, and here we are in this one. We're surrounded by people who are in ignorance just like us. Some of them feel more secure than others. Some of them are really good speculators, they're very convincing. Even if they may admit to you, I'm just speculating, I'm pretty sure this is true. I'm 99.999% positive. But that isn't enough. That's pretty sure. It ain't convinced. So, what does it take to get you convinced? So, uh, fortunately, we have a way out of this. There's a way out. Uh, I made myself a note here. What, what, what is required? Alright, what's required to get out of this, to get out of this knowledge, or this, this ignorance? Knowledge. Knowledge. So we've got to find somebody who has knowledge and conviction in their knowledge and can show you that it's the absolute truth and not something really, really neat. You know? What did I go tell my friends? The, I remember back in uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, we could all talk about 
you know, far out stuff, you know, we'd speculate on this and that. And we'd get a little bit of some philosophy, like the impersonal philosophy, and we'd speculate on what that means. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that you could go to somebody at a party, you know, where everybody's getting high, you know, and you could talk this philosophy, and nobody would get upset. You know, unless they were real heavy-duty Christians or something, you know. But if they are, they probably wouldn't be associating with this group, you see. And so you could talk about, oh, the impersonal, the merging, and the oneness. And people would say, wow, yeah. Hardly would ever anybody want to disagree. But as soon as you bring the absolute truth into this circle, people start to turn you out. They think, wow, you're like cuckoo. Why are you... Where did you get this? Because the truth is going to collide with the speculation. You see? And in the speculative theories and philosophies, um, people can just expand on how they feel. You know? I feel, and I've heard people say that, all of you that are that are preaching, I know Melissa, you've heard this because you've taught Bhagavad Gita a lot. I'm sure you've had people say, well, when it comes to God, I feel that it's, or I think, you know, it could be I, re I remember I was with Tamal Krishna Maharaj one time, it's 1978, right after Prabhupada had left and he had just returned from India. And so he came to my uh, visit me in uh, Knoxville. And so he was preaching. We had a nice group of people. And as was not uncommon, there's this young boy there. And when he got a chance to raise his hand, Maharaj says, yes. And he said, well, when it comes to God, I believe uh, that it could be Tamal went for the <laughs> Wait a minute. You're speculating. I don't know about anybody else in here, but I don't buy speculation. You know. But that was the hip thing in the but I think my feeling, my truth is I don't care what your truth is. I want to know what the truth is because there is a the truth and it belongs to all of us. You can't just grab the truth and say it's mine. My own unique truth which defines who I am. You know, my social standing because look look how really great my truth is. You see? Well, that's not a serious somebody who's seriously looking for the absolute truth. There are absolutes. And one of those absolutes is God and what he says. So Krishna is giving us the absolute truth again and again and again, over and over and over. He gives us the absolute truth. Not only that, but he recruits some of his parts and parcels, some of his devotees, and deputizes them to give you his truth. So it's available. Uh, if you prefer speculation, you can go on speculating. But Krishna really does deliver the truth through his own words in Bhagavad Gita, 
and through those who are his servants that are out there spreading this absolute truth. So it's available. But you got to have one particular ingredient before it's going to work on you. What is that? Anybody know? Sincerity. Boy, it just takes a teeny, tiny, little drop of sincerity. That's all it takes. If you really get that in your heart, that little bit of sincerity, then Krishna makes his move. He'll give you more and more mercy. He starts turning on the mercy spigot, you see. And it'll grow. The knowledge will grow. As knowledge grows, uh, ignorance, lack of knowledge, leaves. So then you find yourself uh, in a position of knowing. You see? That's why many of your friends aren't going to want to associate with you anymore. Said, man, Alex, you used to speculate with me, dude. You know, I mean, it used to be we'd look up at the sky and it, well, now you're just giving me the truth. And I'm not sincere, which means I'm not anywhere near making a move. I just want to party and talk about this cool stuff, you know? And that way people will think I'm kind of cool, you know? And party with me. Yeah? So what is that? What is the essence of that truth? What is the essence of the truth? Of that truth we're speaking about. The essence of that truth is real knowledge coming from the source of truth. Now, we hear a lot of people talk about that nowadays. The source. You know. It doesn't seem to really mean anything. It's just the source. And you ask people, I've done this, this is fun, you ask them. When they're talking about the source and the supreme, that's another thing they like, the supreme and the source. You can ask them, wow, what is this source? Oh, it's the, you know, it's the universe, it's the, I mean, I don't want to go there because now you're going to ask me, you're actually asking me to get off of the speculative platform, if you want me to actually identify who and what is this source. What? But who? You're saying the source is a who? Well, who's going to go there? You know? Man. I so, think recently, I feel like people have even more so. Well, the people I'm talking to, at least, they're more like, I don't know, I don't even care. Like, it's like not even the source anymore. Now it's like, I don't really think about that. I don't really care. I don't really care. Either way, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Who wants to talk about the absolute or or the truth? Because now we're we're running off the speculation road. Yeah, that's a good point. Because even, you know, I see like, you know, the people who are like, Speculating, smoking weed, and trying to figure stuff out. At least they are interested yeah. in something. Because nowadays, they're just like, I don't even want to think about that. I mean, yeah, you have yeah. to be willing to receive some information. Exactly. Simply succession. Yeah. You, you've got to be willing to uh, 
surrender to the truth if it comes and hits you in the face. You know, a lot of people have that attitude that I don't care, truth or not truth, your truth, my truth, the truth, I don't care. I'm not going to accept it because I'm going to continue doing what I want to do. I'm going to continue doing my thing. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. Although it really doesn't. It's only temporary, but that's okay. It's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try it all I can. So there, there is that uh, uh, tremendous movement of people who are just, they don't really care. But they'll speculate with the best of them. You know, if my speculations are better than yours, then I'm obviously more hip. Or more intelligent, or something. You see, too deep. It's too deep. But as soon as come, somebody walks in the room that has the truth, wow, that separates the wheat from the chaff, or the men from the boys, or the women from the girls, or you know what? You see what? All of a sudden, because and this has probably happened to most of us in this room, at least once. I remember when I became a devotee, uh, all of a sudden my circle of friends got real small. <laughs> you know? No, man, whatever happened to that guy who used to sit around and <coughs> speculate and party? And now you're just into this truth. You know? I mean, you're actually wanting to get out of this world. You know, this world is such a great place when you're around friends and you're partying and, you know. And if it's not going well, you just party harder, you know. Sure, you're going to pay for it tomorrow, but it's worth it today. So, you know, such is the, uh, that situation. Uh, so, uh, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to unload this excess baggage of speculation, knowledge? We've got all this garbage in our heads that kind of prevent us when we come in contact with uh, someone in the disciplic succession, someone who's um, uh, working for Krishna as Krishna's agent. All of you in this room are Krishna's agents to some degree or another. So, but I mean, if it's this great, if it'll end this cycle of birth and death with old age and disease, then there's got to be a price tag, right? You're not going to tell me that I'm going to get this for free. Is there a price? Huh? Who said that? Regulative principles of liberation. Yeah. Liberation, I'll bet there's a hidden fee there somewhere. <laughs> you know? I mean, you're telling me it's free shipping, but I know you've put it in for price. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Sounds good, then, right? It's free shipping, but no, I'm paying for it because you're not going to give it away. Uh, so, anybody? What does Krishna say? Krishna tells us the price. I'll give it to you. But here's what I want from you. So, uh, 
And Krishna has this way of bearing his heart and showing his loving, uh, intense, eternal, undying love for you. When he tells you, this is what I want from you. So if we go to Bhagavad Gita, ninth chapter, 22nd verse, Krishna says, now this is it. He's going to tell you, this is what it's going to cost. 9.22, Krishna says, but those who always worship me with exclusive devotion, meditating on my transcendental form, to them I carry what they lack, and I preserve what they have. So I analyze what Krishna is saying here. Here's the price. I want you to always worship me with exclusive devotion. In other words, I want you to stop speculating. You know, it's like, I've said this many times, it's like when two people are dating for a while and it seems like, hey, this is starting to work. I, I really like this. I really like you. Sooner or later, if this relationship is escalating, one or both of them are going to say, hey, can we take this to the next level? What is that? Can we be exclusive? You know, I don't want you to date anybody else, just me. You know, I won't date anybody else. Let's be exclusive. So Krishna is hitting you right there. I want you to worship me always with exclusive devotion. I don't want you to be in a different church every Sunday. <laughs> now if you want to, we're not going to criticize you. Go for it. But Krishna is saying, let's make a commitment. Let's commit to each other. I'm already there. I'm already committed to you. But I'm asking you to commit to me. That's the price. I want you to always give me exclusive devotion. Now, if you think, well, I'm not ready to do that, I want to go explore some other philosophies, off you go. Go out there, do it. Get to it. Well, I thought I'd, I, I, was, I wanted to check out the Buddhist philosophy. All right, here's your faith. Here's your faith in Buddha. Well, I wanted to go be a this or that. Here's your faith. Off you go. Come back and see me when you can pay the price. Always give me loving, uh, exclusive devotion. Not just on the concept of there being a God or the all oneness of everything. And No. He says right here, on my transcendental form. That's what Krishna wants. I want you. Why? I want you to be personal with me. Not speculate something that I am not. Here I am standing in front of you. What do I look like? You can go to the temple and see me. You can see pictures of me. Paintings. I'm making myself available. My transcendental form is available to you. And I want you to always meditate and worship exclusively my transcendental form. 
That's the price. So what is transcendental form? Transcendental form means it, it his form. It, it transcends the, the confines of the material energy. It's it's an eternal form, meaning it has no beginning. It has no end. It's not controlled by the laws of material nature. It's it's transcendentally beautiful. Meaning that there's no material description. I mean, we could say, well, it's awesome, which doesn't really say anything. It's, you know, whatever, throw in whatever you want to call it. We don't know. We don't know how to describe his, his transcendental form until we get the knowledge, which is kind of within us already. He's going to mention that in some other verses that I have here. So, uh, but when we're in the ignorance of material uh, knowledge, which is really lack of real knowledge, uh, we don't know words to describe something as beautiful as Krishna. There aren't any material words, you know. So, but as our consciousness gets purified and starts to come out our true consciousness that's really just dormant now we can, we can actually experience and we won't be saying oh but nobody really knows for sure no you should know for sure if you don't know for sure wash rinse repeat you know, <laughs> go back and try it again you did something wrong it works. It works for everybody. So I'm going to shift to the next chapter, chapter 10. <coughs> Stop me at any time if you have any questions or comments. In, um, in the 8th verse of the 10th chapter, Krishna says, I am the source of all spiritual and material worlds. Well, there's your answer. You hear all these people talking about the source? Who, who else says, I am the source? Jesus didn't say that. Buddha never said that. I mean, who said that? Krishna. Sometimes the impersonalists say, I am God. Sure. Because they think just because I am spirit, that means, and all spirit is, is one, that means I am God. So, yeah, right, you're God. <laughs> Boy, if you're God, you're not a very good one, that's for sure, because just look at the mess you've got yourself into. You know, come on. So, but those who, uh, oh, excuse me. I am the, the source of all spiritual and material worlds. Everything emanates from me. He goes back and repeats it. Krishna doesn't try to hide anything from you. If you've got that ingredient of sincerity, I'm going to tell you the whole, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The wise who perfectly know this engage in my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. 
Nobody talks like this but Krishna, you know. He's got this in, in, incredible confidence. You know, he's always in charge. He's always in control, never being controlled. Unless it's Radharani or his mother. Some woman can control him, but nobody, nobody else can control Krishna. That was supposed to be funny. The lady, uh, I thought the ladies would laugh, but you know. Uh, <laughs> and he's trying to laugh less. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Strike that from the record, okay? Yeah. Krishna goes on in the next verse. This is the ninth verse. The thoughts of my pure devotees dwell in me. Their lives are fully devoted to my service, and they derive great satisfaction and bliss from always enlightening one another and conversing about me. So he's talking like a proud father, isn't he? You know, the thoughts of my pure devotees dwell in me. Their lives are fully devoted to my service, and they derive great satisfaction and bliss from always enlightening one another and conversing about me. Is that in any other scripture? So this is very easy to see. Nobody talks like God, but God, you know, we've never experienced this. To those who are constant, here he goes again, to those who are constantly devoted to serving me with love, I give the understanding by which they can come to me. You can't figure it out. You were born in, in ignorance. But if you're constantly devoted to me with love, I'll give you the understanding by which you can come to me. I'll give it to you. So this is how you get rid of your excess baggage. There's the, there, the, you know, Krishna's saying, if you do this, I'll do that. He's striking a deal. Businessman. If you, then I, you know, you do that constantly with love, then I'll give you the knowledge by which you can come to me. Because unless I give it to you, you're not going to get there. You're going to speculate yourself into the next life. and You're going to do that and do that and do that. Because just as we don't have words to describe Krishna's transcendental beautiful form, we don't have knowledge of transcendental truth. We don't have this knowledge. We're, we're used to everything being born and dying and getting old and getting diseased. And I mean, you can get pretty wise about the comings and goings and the dealings of the material world. You can learn a PhD, get a PhD in all kinds of stuff. But unless Krishna gives you this, either directly through his Bhagavad Gita, or says it to you face to face, or sends his agent, 
you're not going to get it. You can't specu speculate yourself to this knowledge. Then he goes on in the 11th verse of the 10th chapter to show them special mercy. I, dwelling in their hearts, destroy with a shining lamp of knowledge the darkness born of ignorance. This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you the knowledge to show you special mercy. You're going to need special mercy from me to figure this out. You're not going to get out of this by going to a party, partying real high, you know, real hard, being real hip, you know, and speculating, trying to out-speculate your, your neighbor. You're not going to get it. Well, you can do that all you want. Yeah. Does Krishna, are there any verses, or does Krishna address the issue of the impersonal Brahman, or like impersonalism in Bhagavad Gita? Yeah. Or are there any verses that you can think of where maybe there's a comparison? Yeah. Oh, interesting question. It's like Krishna is such a... <laughs> he's a rascal, you know? He's just got this... I mean, he's God. He can be a rascal and get away with it. You know? Who does he have to answer to? Oh, I know, I know. Some woman. Radharani, Mother Yashoda. <laughs> so he's just like the rest of us. so many bookmarks in here but none of them take me where I want to go. Alright. Arjuna's asking him that straight out, you know, hey Krishna, come on. Let's see. Arjuna asked Krishna uh, straight out, um, so which is better, the impersonal conception of you or the devotional service? So you would expect Krishna to hop on that. Oh boy, devotional service, right? No way, you know, no, no way this is impersonal. But Krishna says, well, those who, uh, I can't remember the verses, I'm having a senior moment. I thought it's I, like 12-1. 12-1, that's right. See, I get this. My brain, I'm gonna, it's tough to get old. I get, it gets all jumbled when I try to get these things out of it, you know? It's like my brain is really useful until I actually want it to go to work. Yeah. Arjuna inquired. Thanks. <laughs> Which are considered uh, to be more perfect? This is nice wording that Arjuna... Uh, uses. Which is more perfect? Those who are always properly engaged in your devotional service or those who worship the impersonal Brahman? 
the unmanifest. Wow, that's cutting right to the heart of this, this big argument between the personalist and the impersonalist. Arjuna just throws it out there. Hey, Krishna, which is better? You see? So, you would expect Krishna to just break a pop on that, you know? But he doesn't. The Supreme Personality of Godhead said, those who fix their minds upon my personal form and are always engaged in worshiping me with great transcendental, uh, great and transcendental faith are considered by me to be most perfect. Well, that sounds like he just answered the question, right? But no. Krishna goes on. But those who fully worship the unmanif uh, unmanifested, that which lies beyond the perception of the senses, the all-pervading, inconceivable, unchanging, fixed, and immovable, the impersonal conception of the absolute truth by controlling the various senses and being equally disposed to everyone, such persons engaged in the welfare of all at last achieve me. Whoa. So which is it? He's not saying really one way or the other here. Right off, is he? Except, did you hear the price tag for that one? By controlling the various senses and being equally disposed to everyone? Who do you know that does that? Who controls their senses? All these people who speculate about the impersonal oneness. And, you know, now there's some uh, Buddhist monks and there's other monks that control the senses and they try to be equally disposed to everyone. But this is a hard road. Very difficult. So Krishna goes on and he explains, for those whose minds are at, uh, attached to the unmanifest, <coughs> excuse me, unmanifested, impersonal feature of the Supreme, advancement is very troublesome. To make progress in that discipline is always difficult for those who are embodied. You can do it, and ultimately you're going to achieve me. But what does that mean? Does that mean that at, at, at the time of death you're going to go to Krishna? Wait a minute. No. You get the impersonal Brahman. But you're not going to stay there. It's a temporary destination. So sooner or later you're going to want to feel love. Affection. Love um, fuels all of us. We want that. We demand it. You see? We, we need it. So once we get into the impersonal Brahman, we have shanti, peace. And it could last for a long, long time. We could stay there as long as we want. Millions of years, if you want. Or not. As soon as you want love, that's not part of the contract in the impersonal Brahman. You see? 
If it's impersonal, what is there to love? You get shanti without love. You can get peace, yeah. How, though, if you're always conscious? Because you're away from the material pangs. So is time moving faster for you? It's not moving. You've, you've achieved your sat feature. You're eternal. Now I, I've realized I'm eternal. And I'm in the light. Or I'm in the nirvanic void. You see? And I'm, I, I've escaped birth, death, disease, and old age. I am, I've, I've achieved my knowledge of, eter- of being eternal. Yeah. I've heard it likened to being in a coma. Yeah. There's no, yeah. there's no sensory perception. Oh, there's yeah. no activity. There's nothing going on. There's no one to acti- be active with. Well, how's it? How's it? Shanti, are you blessed there? Because you're not affected by birth, death, disease, old age, politics. Arthritis. You're not controlled by some woman. No, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, Krishna is, but now here you are. You're you're not. There's there's no uh, you you've a seat. Uh, uh, you've gotten away from. Uh, the things in the material world that agitate you. You see? The threefold miseries. You're not affected by uh, other people, other living entities. You see? You're not affected by adyatmika klesh, you know, the troubles of the mind. Adi Daivaka Klesh, the troubles from the acts of God. There's no flood. There's no drought. It's never too hot. It's never too cold. It's just, you're just there. And so you can be peaceful. And after some time of feeling peace, you're going to want some love. You've recovered. Like, that would take like hours. Like hours, you'd be like, it could. Oh. It could. <laughs> It really could, unless you were like. But you could stay there in that in that coma as long as you want. You see? Did you have a question? Yeah. Um, so sorry if this doesn't actually relate to the Iskant canon, but uh, and I don't know what his source was because I saw it in the documentary, not in the the book, the Carl Sagan book Cosmos, the the companion documentary. At one point. He's talking about the Big Bang, and he says that Hindus are the only people historically who believe that there was an expanding universe that was going to actually eventually collapse back in on itself completely. And he was saying this as one of the theories about what's going to happen with the Big Bang, that the universe can't expand forever, that it's eventually going to collapse in itself. And I sometimes find myself wondering, and I'm wondering if that relates to transcending that circle of you know birth life and death if uh you know you're you're somehow escaping also this universe eventually collapsing on itself or if that's not even part of iskot's philosophies no 
That's not, he didn't get that from the study of the Vedas. Do you know where he got that from by any chance? Some speculation. Well, well, Mahavishnu is, is breathing and the whole material manifestation is expanding from his breath and as he inhales, I mean technically he's inhaled so it all goes back into Comes the back. like winding and unwinding. He's talking about the universe expanding. And the universe is finite, so it's not expanding. Oh, yeah. Well, I love the discussion of a day in the life of Brahma, because it talks about how many Earth years. Um, and yes, that, that in the beginning, was it Vishnu or Brahma who breathed out? Mahavishnu. Mahavishnu breathes yeah. out and everything is expanding and creating and then when he breathes back in everything is annihilated. In. Including over over. all of the material all the, the living entities that are in the material world. So when I first heard this all of us he exhales, everything comes out, all the ingredients for the material world. And then when he inhales, everything comes back in. So, uh, but the scientists can't go with that. Carl Sagan couldn't really go with that fully because you've got to admit that there is this personality that's actually doing this and not some mechanical process that, although they never explain, can you imagine, all right, there's this thing, a really big thing, it's everything, the whole universe, or the collection of universes, trillions and billions of universes. So it's big enough, even on a concentrated level, to have everything. So, But even though it's very concentrated, it's still got to be pretty massive, right? All right, for that thing to blow up, it's going to take one heck of an explosion. How come that I'm, I'm not a scientist, but how come they don't go there? What could have blown this massive thing up that's really everything came from? That, that sounds like speculation all the way. Well, I feel like a lot of these people, a lot of these theories, you know, they, they just they come from like, like Charles Darwin's, you know, whole stuff. Like, oh, yeah. It all comes from Vedic. You know, philosophy, and then they just put their own like speculation on it, right. and then like reach that and call it their own. But see, that's that's their excess baggage. They've been doing this forever. That's what they do is they speculate. Or without like transcendental knowledge that's coming through the discipline succession, the things that we simply observe can be misinterpreted. You know, like always we, we describe the Big Bang, so it's just a description. It's not a discussion of why. Um, oh, and there's a story in the Bhagavad Gita. I think it's in one of the purports, um, and it talks about how. Like the scorpion mother will lay her eggs in, in a pile of rice. Right. And then later, all the scorpion babies come out of the rice. So everybody thinks the scorpions were born from the rice, but they're not. Right. They were placed there by the mother. And they're convinced. You know, they'll fight you. They'll say, scorpions come from rice. Right. No, they don't. Yes, they do. I have witnessed with my imperfect senses, scorpions coming from rice. 
So rice is the source of scorpions. So, yeah. Now, I mean, maybe, maybe they think, the scientists think, that there is this thing that exploded, and then it goes out, but then somehow or other, everything kind of like is sucked back into that thing, and when everything hits, it explodes again, and it just keeps on going back and forth. I don't remember. <coughs> it's yeah. just something I think about sometimes when I'm here. Yeah. yeah. Then, um, you know, probably talked about how life comes from life. So that's just that's another thing. Life. When have we ever experienced life coming from matter? Matter. Nothing from. When is that? Can we? We can't do that in a laboratory. We've never witnessed it. It can't be proven that it even can happen. See, if I if I try to make mundane the fact that you're conscious, if I try to make that mundane, then I can speculate anything. But. All of this speculation can't explain consciousness. You see? Where does the consciousness come from? What is the difference between something that has consciousness and something that, that doesn't? So, yeah, this, uh, that's good. You know, Carl Sagan was, a, was very good at uh, speculating. He made a lot of money and got a lot of fame. From speculating, never really proven anything. Krishna goes on. Let me read this and then we'll wrap it up. <laughs> so he said that, hey, you can do this. You know, you can achieve me at, at last. You'll get me through the impersonal process. But those who worship me, giving up all their activity, here he goes again. You know, he wants all of you. Those who worship me, giving up all their activities unto me, and being devoted to me without deviation, engaging in devotional service, and always meditating upon me, having fixed their minds upon me, O son of Pritta, for them I am the swift deliverer from the ocean of birth and death. Now, how many times did he say, me? <laughs> you know, Krishna says, but those who worship me, giving up all their uh, activities unto me, being devoted to me without deviation, engaged in devotional service and always meditating upon me, having fixed their minds upon me. <laughs> so it's five times in one sentence, Krishna saying. I think he's making himself very clear. You know, like, oh, hey, if you'll do that, if, you know, if it's me that you're meditating on, if I have all of your attention and all of your love, not partial, exclusive, I want to be exclusive, for, the, for you that I am the swift deliverer from the ocean of birth and death. I'll do it for you. I'll give you the knowledge 
for you to come to me. I'll deliver you personally. You see? In other words, he keeps trying to get himself into this equation with you. Krishna keeps trying to hook up with you. I want you to love me. Give me your love. Give me your worship. Give me. And then I will give you the knowledge and I will deliver you. He wants to be exclusive and hook up. This is, this is, he's a flirt. He's flirting with you. You see? Come on. Let's be my lover. I'll do, I'll do anything for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Vada Hari Das uh, gave a class once and he said there's only one thing that Krishna doesn't have and that's our love because we rejected him. And he gave you free will. Yeah, and still he comes and gives us another opportunity to, because he, he loves us so much he wants us to be re-engaged with him. He's trying to seduce us so back right. into loving him. You see, he's the the transcendental stalker. He's always always there, waiting for the opportunity. He's trying to end our time out. Yeah, you know. So uh, this is the difference. To some people, they're they they just can't wrap their minds around being intimate with the supreme source. I just want to say that I think that we, the barriers to faith, you know, we have a very cynical and skeptical society, you know, so even if you really want to seek knowledge and you want to have that firm conviction, it can be a lifelong pursuit, you know, because we're surrounded by so many doubters, you know, so we can be skeptic and cynical and just good old-fashioned misguided. Right. And all of that comes because we're really not sincere. The minute we get sincere, Krishna starts making, he starts opening doors for us. Did you have a question? Yeah, I was curious about the question around the topic of the universe expanding because I can't recall off the top of my head any explicit or specific verse that says one way or the other, but in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about the, um, the great Banyan tree that is constantly nourished and growing, and even though it's impossible to perceive in the material world, would it be fair to say that that's analogous to the universe, because if you're watering that tree and it's expanding, which then eventually dies, that also, too, the universe is expanding and going through the same process of birth, aging, dying. I can't recall right now uh, Krishna saying anything about the universe expanding. Yeah. I, don't I don't recall that either. I don't recall Maybe that. Maybe it's in Srimad Bhagavatam. In the first too. canto, that day in the life of Brahma and Mahavishnu and all that stuff. But I don't, but I don't know if it says anything about it's expanding. As a matter of fact, from my knowledge, it's not. It's right. it's there, you know. It, 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 it's my understanding is the universe is actually finite. Some universes are finite. rising than others. Yeah. The whole material world is finite. That's what. That's part of 
being well, material. Well, doesn't it all the stem, the stem coming out of Lord Vishnu's navel, like all the worlds are contained within that stem, and then Brahma well, comes what, out at the top, so then the whole thing is created at the beginning? It's from his breath. Lord Brahma comes from the lotus. But you can also argue the that pores, the... Huh? They emanate from the pores also. And from the, the yeah, emanates. The living entities come from the breathing. The universe has come from its pores. Ah. From the vicious pores. Yeah. yeah. So the Big Bang Theory, I believe that the amount of matter and energy is fixed. It's just how, how much space it's taking, how diluted it is, or how complicated at various points yeah. in time. And the fact of the matter is they don't. In my life, I've seen them change philosophy so much. You know, like the Neanderthal man was supposed to be one of the predecessors to the modern-day man. But now they're saying, oh, we, we now have evidence that the Neanderthal lived with the modern-day man. Or they, lived, they were a separate race and they lived together. So, wait a minute, that just blows the theory that it, we evolved from the Neanderthal. You know? And also evolving from um, the apes or the monkey. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, my argument to that is, is, well, if we evolved from them, why do they still exist? That's a, that's a, <laughs> this is a strong point. How come these guys haven't thought of that? Yeah, why didn't they evolve? Why are there still... Why are there still snakes and birds? If, if it all evolved, why are the people, why are the entities, the species that did this evolving, why are they still here? Shouldn't they have evolved? Yeah, see, it's kind of like we're not supposed to be smart enough to ask those questions. We're supposed to be survival of the fittest, so the ones that didn't evolve are supposed to die off, but they're still here. But they're still here. So there is the survival of the fittest because the the fit species are eating the the weaker species for food, but the the weaker species are still here. They're weaker, but they still are here. It's not just lions, you know. If everything evolved, then the lion would be who's the king of the forest, king of the jungle. He'd be president. He'd be president. There'd be nothing but lions. You go in the forest, there's nothing but lions because they're the strongest one. They ate everything else. But we can see. I mean, I'm not the brightest star in the sky, but I can figure that out. I like the value, too, of the Paramatma because I can't intellectualize everything and come to accept, but... For me, mm, I come to recognize when something resonates. You know, like I, I don't have an intellectual argument why I'm accepting that other than it resonates. Yeah. And that's real. That's palpable. It's meaningful. It, you know, it's not to be dismissed. Yeah. I, and I don't have to explain why it resonates. 
I mean, I can have some understanding, maybe, of, or some thought of why it resonates. Uh, why do I recognize Krishna's words as the, the supreme absolute truth? Uh, I don't have to have a reason, and if I do, I don't have to share it with anybody. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just do. I can, I can understand the truth. You see? I can't put any other truth. I can't say that this is, uh, you know, this this knowledge in Bhagavad Gita is just really great, but not absolute. Because if it's not absolute, then what is? So then you're saying nothing is. If this isn't, and you don't have anything that is, then nothing is absolute. Which means you're just in material consciousness and you're, you're not ready to move into transcendental consciousness and accept the truth of Bhagavad Gita through your uh, transcendental intelligence. In other words, it's like Lord Chaitanya says, Chaito Darpana Marjana. I can't understand it, but it's like cleansing of a mirror. As you cleanse the layers of dust off of the mirror, the mirror becomes more and more clear. At one point, I'm going to move, remove a layer of dust and I can see myself in that mirror. You see? So, the very first time we read Bhagavad Gita may not give full illumination. Why? I'm not sincere. I'm not ready to do what Krishna wants. I'm not going to give him 100% of me. It's not a cheap thing to escape this world of birth and death. It's not cheap. Even if you say, well, I'm just going to go meditate on the, the oneness of, all right, go do that. It's not cheap. How long are you going to be able to do that? You know, I've actually talked to people about that, you know, that think that they can. So you're going to go out in the forest and you're going to put on the kusa grass and the your skin and you're going to perform a shtong yoga you know you're going to sit with your spine perfectly in line with the center of the planet move the life airs up to the top of the head focus on the tip of the nose so you're going to do that and how long is it going to take you before you want a beer you know <laughs> Or, you know, you're, you're going to be looking for your phone. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Come on. You know, you're not going to do that. But but that's that's my truth. Yes, I can do that. And I shall do that. And we can all do that. We can all go to the forest and raise the left area. We, we can, sure. In previous yugas, when you lived thousands of years, You'd have a better shot at it. And you're born into a family of yogis. But come on. You know, it's just Krishna's mercy. If he says, I'll deliver you. You gotta surrender to me, become my loving associate. Think be exclusively focused on me, loving me only. And if you'll do that, I personally will deliver you. I'll personally do it. And you, but you can say, 
No, no, that's okay. <laughs> I'm going to go out in the forest. So don't let people tell you that I don't even have to go to the forest. I can just meditate on the water. Yeah, right. Do we know of anybody that's done it? I'm talking in recent years. History's got records of so many people that have done so many things. Who's done it? Now, do we have records of people who've achieved perfection from following uh, Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam? Yes. Thousands. Millions. We've actually witnessed them living perfect lives. We've actually seen Prabhupada. We've actually seen them. We've actually walked with them. Flawless. Uh -huh. Never speculate. Always knowing. So, so would that be like, from everything you're, you're talking from these, it's like you're talking about sincerity. Comes back to that. It all comes back to sincerity. And it's the, not only that, but this path is the easiest way. Some people say, well, it's so hard. No, you just got to get over yourself. <laughs> you know, I, I, want the, I, want, I want to reserve the freedom to speculate whatever I want and have my truth. And I don't want to look God in the face because he may ask me to do something that I don't want to do. So it, that means you're not sincere. You're trying to make the best out of this bad bargain of the material world. You remember in, in the early days that phrase, everything, it, it all rests on our desire. Exactly. That phrase, it all rests on our desire. You got the desire, Krishna will fulfill it. But if we reserve desires, it may, he, he's, that message is again and again in these verses. I want it all. I don't want to share me. I don't want to share you with anybody else. Even if they are incarnations of me. Boy. Krishna's demanding, isn't he? Lord Buddha is me. But I don't want you to focus on me. I want you to focus on me. Me. I am the original form of Godhead. I am the source of everything. And I want you to... Give all of your love and all of your worship and all of your attention to me. And then I will deliver you from all this. So I want all of your desire. I want all of you. You are mine. And I am yours. You're mine and I want you back. Unalloyed. You know, want it all. Krishna... Pretty demanding guy. So, Swamiji, sincerity, uh, sincerity, and say desire of desiring for Krishna. Right? But there's so many other desires that come and go as well, as in in the mundane material. And suddenly, before you know it, the habit of desiring for Krishna can be cultivated more and more. Or the habit of some other desire taking over 
flow of sincerity right but as we start to actually advance in our Krishna consciousness and our sincerity actually starts to grow and as we cleanse that mirror more and more we'll get to the point that we actually get a, enough of a taste that it doesn't fluctuate back and forth we become attracted to and attached to Krishna. And at that point, nothing else has any attraction. Nothing. Because what I'm doing is I'm purifying my desires from uh, material desires to spiritual desires. Now, defining spiritual desires, true spiritual desires, means I'm desiring Krishna. Now, if I, if I have, some people could argue, well, I have spiritual desires, but I'm not just wanting Krishna. Well, that's because you've mixed in a little bit of material desires <laughs> in with your spiritual. It's so like you're I'm, doing some, uh, what are they, karmakanda, you know? I'm doing spiritual activity, I'm doing yagya, but I'm wanting some return, <clears throat> you know? I'm wanting something material in it. I'm wanting daily bread. I'm wanting this. I'm wanting wealth. I'm wanting... So as you get to the point to where you're only focused on Krishna and that's all you want, now you've made it. You're not going to fluctuate back and forth. Yeah. And Prabhupada um, um, said the way to move through the material desires is to dovetail those material desires in service to the Lord. And then that will help purify us and will eventually give up that hankering for material desires. Right. We purify the material desires, making them spiritual desires. I want to eat. What if you well then, but if I offer food to Krishna, now eating becomes spiritual. Did you have a question? I was like, just going to make a comment. I was like listening to when the sincerity level starts to go down, now I might be a little envious. Well, his chanting's really good. So that means she's going to like his chanting better than mine. So that's the ebb and flow that you're talking about. I was really doing, I was really into the kirtan, oh, the holy name and everything, but wait a minute. This guy is so good. Oh, She's going to be like any other. So now I just fell right out of it. 
What's the poison? Self-interest. As soon as I get this self-interest thing going for me, I forgot about Krishna. This is the, the struggle that we have to overcome. I'm, are you more concerned about Krishna's gratification or your own? And if you're more concerned about your own, there's hundreds of religions that will accommodate that. <laughs> That's a fact. <coughs> Nobody's going to criticize you for going to church and saying, give us, give us a stare of daily bread. Who's going to say, well, that's self-interest. Nobody's going to criticize that. Way to go, brother. <laughs> and Krishna says, whatever you do, do it for me. And I like the part where he says, I'm the taste of water, the light of the sun and the moon. So it's like all day, every day, I'm seeing the sun and the moon and drinking water. <laughs> so in other words, after a while, everything reminds you of Krishna. Yeah. Sun, the moon, water, you know, fire of digestion. So, yeah. Um, I, I remember things like Nitaran said, one of the best ways to avoid envy, becoming envious, is to not compare ourselves to everyone else. We all have special gifts. And the only way you can get away with that is to place yourself beneath everyone else. Now that flies in the face of uh, Tony Robbins and all these people, the self-help gurus. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't know that you are part and parcel of the Supreme, so now you've got all these self-doubts. Because you think you are your body, and we can see that bodies, some, some bodies are stronger than others, some are prettier, some are younger, some are healthier, well, now I've got all these complexes, so I need Tony Robbins to tell me that I can awake the, the giant within me. So it's, this is, in other words, he's going to help me believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And he's so convincing. And he makes a lot of money doing this. And it's just hogwash. I mean, if you, if you really believe that you are part and parcel, as Krishna says, in the 15th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that you are eternally my fragmental part and parcel. Well, then how can you ever have any doubts about yourself? I'm part of God. I am. I'm the same DNA. I'm part and parcel of him. I don't have any worries. I my only worry is what will I desire other than him? You know? How much self-interest am I going to have in me? But Krishna wants me, my interest to be in him. Not part-time, not just on Sunday. No. Always. So that sounds difficult, but then Krishna's a very attractive guy. It's pretty easy to make, to let him take over your uh, consciousness. If we will... So then, is it that the pleasure of devotion and the pleasure that comes from the sincerity and with the habit of cleaning the mirror, as you said, then that pleasure overwhelms every other pleasure? 
Yes. That pleasure is more attractive than all these other small pleasures. So. And once you taste it, you realize it's the only pleasure. The other pleasures are just imitation. They're not pleasures. And you can engage all your senses. Delicious food and beautiful music and intellectual Yeah, how was I just had cake. It was very pleasurable. Yeah. But it was pleasure it gave Krishna pleasure first. First we offered it to Krishna. So when you offer something to Krishna, he becomes that offering. Which makes it taste even better. Did you have a question? Yeah, I was going to say, you had this, uh, you said this a long time ago. Well, I hope it's still true. <laughs> you said one time that the statement still sticks with me, always in my mind, that people get confused wanting spiritual life, but they forget they want, that the goal is not spiritual life, the goal is Krishna. You know, people think, I want to live a spiritual life and do this and that, and yeah. you know, do the whole thing. Yeah. We hear that phrase a lot in, in devotee terms, spiritual life, but we can have spiritual life, but the real thing is, is if we have spiritual life, it's to lead us to Krishna. Right. But if we have Krishna, then... Therefore, he says, Sarva Dharma, all Dharma, Arikyagya, abandon it. Abandon all Dharma. Abandon all spiritual life. Abandon all religion. <laughs> what kind of God says that? Just surrender to me. Become my loving servant. Wow. But if you're attached to getting some return from your religious activities, stay religious. You're, you're, if you really want me, then come here and worship me, give me all of your love give me all of you and let that go that doesn't mean that you're going to become irreligious but all of your religious your dharma, your religious activities will become acts of love not just like going to work and doing something to get paid you see Take everything up for Krishna's interest and not your own. So, all right, you want to take us all? Hare Krishna. Thank you all for tuning in. Sometimes great sages do that. They try to sneak in and see if they'll be unrecognized. Melissa's a true great sage. She was giving Bhagavatina class when, when this room was just uh, not built. Wasn't even built. Wasn't even here. We were over there. It was like a, a Tulsi shack, I think, up right here. Yeah. It was a greenhouse. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we were over there where everybody lives, where, where you live now, that used to be. We had a little room over there where we do uh, Bhagavad Gita classes. <coughs> when I pass through time, I would do Bhagavad Gita class. Lalita! I'm right here. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. I'm so happy. <laughs> 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 